This program is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you like what you hear and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm. Hello, and welcome to Sweet 2 on 2, a show which puts the arts in a social, cultural and political context here on London's Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm your host, Tom Overton. The subject of today's show is a settlement which by summer 2016 housed around 10,000 displaced people near Calais and was generally referred to in the British media as the Calais jungle. The French authorities referred to it as La Lande, which means the heath in reference to the sandy geography of the contaminated former landfill site it was built upon. The complex histories of the area go back at least to the 12th century, but a series of political changes, including the opening of the Channel Tunnel in 1994, meant that despite it being on French soil, the area began to function as the border with England. With the opening of the Schengen scheme, allowing easier travel across Europe in 1995, the displacement of people by the 1998 Kosovan War and the similar effect of conflicts after 9-11, this border became increasingly busy. There were cycles of high-profile demolitions of camps in 2002 and 2009. In 2012, the then-British Home Secretary, Theresa May, announced her intention to create a hostile environment in immigration policy. And in 2014, the French effectively became the police arm of enforcing this policy at the border. In this context, the site known as La Compte de Lelande uh, took shape in 2015 and was demolished in, 20, in October 2016. The prefect of the Pas-de-Calais area in which it sat, Fabien Buccio, announced in a resonantly chilling phrase that the humanitarian dismantling operation is over. That same week, Dan Hicks, a professor of contemporary archaeology at Oxford University and curator of world archaeology at the Pitt Rivers Museum, argued that Britain has never needed anthropology the broader discipline in which his own work sits, more than it does today because anthropology resists the dehumanisation of others by expanding our conception of humanities. I'm delighted to say that Dan joins me in the studio today. Hello, hello, hello Tom. Hi. Um, Dan's various accomplishments include being the author of five books, including handbooks on material culture studies and historical archaeology. His 2007 The Garden of the World looked at sugar landscapes in the Eastern Caribbean. I also saw on his Wikipedia page, which is uh, something I shouldn't admit to be doing, that he was taught uh, at school in school in Birmingham by the poet R.F. Langley. That is true. Yeah. <laughs> it is true. I don't. It wasn't. I don't think it was footnoted, but like, <laughs> I'm glad that's true. Um, with collaborators including the archaeologist Sarah Mallet and the photographer and journalist and aid worker Caroline Gregory, Dan has been working on that anthropological project of resisting the dehumanisation of others through a project called Lond. The Calais Jungle and Beyond, which the social geographer Danny Dawling has called shocking, stunning and sobering. Lawn takes the form of an exhibition which opens at the Pitt Rivers Museum in Oxford in April, and a book which will follow with Bristol University Press in May. Uh, one of the book's most memorable claims is that Britain was never a nation of shopkeepers, but its present challenge is the threat and prospect of a nation of customs officers from university lecturers to landlords. So, Dan, uh, my first two questions... Uh, why uh, the museum, uh, the Pitt Rivers Museum, is the place to tell the story uh, and why contemporary archaeology is the way to do it. Okay, thanks, Tom. Um, and so, yeah, really nice to uh, uh, to, uh, to be here and to have an opportunity to talk about this exhibition that opens a bit later this month. Um, so, yes, I mean, so we at the Pitt Rivers Museum are a museum of anthropology and world archaeology. And like a lot of anthropology museums, we were founded in the later part of the of the 
yeah, 19th century, and really were a sort of product of empire in all sorts of ways. This you know, notion of anthropology and especially its sort of focus on objects was really bound up with how in the West alternative ways of living, alternative you know, technologies were being imagined in a very colonial gaze. Uh, one of the major tasks for those of us who work in the museum today is on the one side to navigate and to negotiate the histories of the uh, the legacies of those of those objects uh, and of the, and of the museum as an institution, but also to reimagine what the museum is for today. You know, why mm. do we need anthropology as a discipline, and why do we need anthropology museums in the present? And that really is at the heart of the challenge for for for, for us. At its best, anthropology is a way of understanding alternative you know, ways of living and and a way of understanding what I like to think of as the undocumented present. Mm. So in the 19th century, at the time at which yeah, museums yeah, like the Pitt Rivers were being founded, in the West, the idea of you know, the prehistoric was, if you like, a new idea. You know, the the notion that you could write histories of the deeper past, of the Stone Age, of the Neolithic, mm. from which there is no writing. But you could use mm. objects in order to tell those histories. That became, you know, at the time, it was very, very, very much a new idea. And it became, you know, it has been in the past 150 years, a really important part of what archaeology and anthropology are. I think for, for us as a discipline now, one of the great sort of challenges, the thing we haven't stepped up to yet, is to think about that notion of the undocumented present. The fact that there are lives and existences and experiences that are going on all around us, um, to which archaeology and anthropology, with its focus upon the material culture and the visual culture of the world, we can, we, yeah, we can tell different stories. Mm. And we can we, we can hopefully at our best we can can uh, can bring a humanity sort of to that and work in a in a collaborative way to ensure that voices that we don't normally hear are are heard. Mm. So when for listeners who haven't been to the Pit Rivers before, what sort of uh, if they were to walk, walk in, what what would they see? What are the collections like that are that yeah that they would face them as they stepped into the museum sure so the pit rivers um is a collection of 300,000 artifacts from around the world it's one of the two um archaeology museums of the university of oxford so it's very much the the sort of obverse or the reverse of what you see in in the Ashmolean Museum. Mm. Uh, the difference between the two collections is one really between alternative sort of visions of culture mm. or of civilization. Uh, you know, the West or the rest, mm. the the difference between classical antiquity and a, a, a mix of, um, of folkloric objects anthropological objects from you know non-western non locations but also sort of earlier prehistory as well so mm. it's a it's an eclectic mix but it's also you know it's a deeply sort of troubling space in all sorts of ways as well because of its intimate histories with empire mm. uh, and because of the you know a large amount of the untold history of those objects really you know relates to colonial violence and to those 
and to those histories. So when we came to look at the Calais work, which which uh, which emerged really from you know, 2016 with 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 an award of a grant to use archaeological ways of thinking to look at what at the time was being referred to as the, as the refugee crisis, mm. we were very interested in how you know the museum you're working from a museum and from if you like a discipline you know like archaeology which has all this history it has all this baggage it has all all this sort of problematic legacy how can we start from the perspective that maybe there is hope in anthropology maybe as a discipline as an institution like a museum maybe these these are sort of projects are not yet over we don't know how they end mm. and maybe we can turn the thing around and actually we can do something sort of positive with reimagining a museum yeah like the pit rivers as a public space mm. as a space to as what Hannah Arendt refers to as a space of appearance mm. Are we able, for the modern world, for the contemporary world, are we able to tell a story about the the ongoing situation of uh, uh, displaced people at the UK national border in France? Are we able to tell that story using the methods of anthropology? Are we able to... And in order to do that, we, you know, we built a... Um, if, if, yeah, a group of the uh, the co-curators who have worked mm. with us um, on this project, which is a mix of um, yeah, displaced people who lived at the Calais jungle, who now have sort of yeah, yeah, right to remain in the UK and are trying to make a career in the arts or in sort of museums or a similar you know, way of life, mm. um, and also activists who lived at the jungle and, and again, are working in this sector um, in some way. Mm. In order to get the human land, you know, to start with the human lives and experiences um, from, from this, this space, which we only, you know, really understand through the media representations mm. of crisis, of emergency, of the those images of the act of destruction in October mm. 2016, I guess our interest was really how can archaeology and anthropology allow a more human but also a more long-term sort of you know, perspective? Mm. How can anthropological thinking about environments, about, uh, about the post-colonial legacies about sort of time itself mm. how can we use that sort of thinking to say something that um that is important and hasn't been said yet about uh, you know, the ongoing situation at the calais border because one of the i think one of the uh binaries almost that you, you draw out quite inter interestingly in the or comparisons you make very interestingly in the book is between the border and the museum and describing borders as themselves a technology of classification and that so bringing those sort of things into 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 conjunction in the museum is, is a really interesting idea if um what would you so you described a bit sort of um for people who'd, who've not been to the pit rivers before what they'd see in the sort of like the collections uh, when they walk into the exhibition what will the what will they see in the uh, in the exhibition sure okay well let's just you know, not let the point that you just made a moment ago <laughs> sort, of, uh, sort of go so let me just 
you know underline that point because it, it is a really it, important thing that we realized i guess about half halfway into the project mm. um which is the common history of the museum and the border so mm. that sense that the anthropological museum is a mode of classification it's a technology for the creation of alterity or, or of difference the mm. making of others the the even the divide i mentioned a moment ago between one you know one museum and another mm. that is not unconnected to you know racial ideologies mm. as were enacted from anthropology in the later 19th century early 20th century mm. there were very troubling links between those um yeah, racial ide ideologies and the taking of objects from people mm. and actually you know dispossession has a connection to the idea of you know reducing others simply you know, to their bodies mm. rather than to their cultures or their histories mm. and in a lot of ways that's what borders do as well so a part of the argument that we build in the exhibit and in the book is that the border operates in a similar way to the museum historically mm. in that it serves to make a distinction in between sort of types of humans in between us and them mm. in between uh you know the the you know those people that have things and those people that don't and you know that that's that's something that runs through the exhibit um, and is a part of you know, what informs it. What you'll see at the exhibition, uh, you know, and so, and so the exhibition is on from, from from the end of April. It runs until November 29th. Um, it's free, although we encourage people to uh, to give to help uh, uh, refugees, one of the key charities for work in this area. Um, you know when they visit, but but in order to visit the ex exhibit, it's free. Uh, as you walk in, you're going to see a series of things that have been kept from the Calais jungle as it existed in 2015 to 16. So our question is not so much what survives from the near present, mm. although that's a very interesting archaeological question, and it's a part of how we got to thinking about the you know, the border landscape and the border work, as we could mm. call it, in these ways. It isn't only about what survives, but, but actually what have people kept. So every object starts with a person. Mm. Everything in this exhibit is on loan. Mm. So you see you're walking into a web of sort of relationships and friendships and obligations and you know, ongoing exchanges, unfinished exchanges in between our curatorial team and the people who kept things from the Calais jungle. These are displaced people, these are activists, and these are volunteers. Because mm. I think the all the way through the, the, the book, which is um, related sort of uh, in terms of sort of how it sort of tells the story at, at slightly greater length, you know, kind of in text rather than in objects. But um, it, there are various sort of stories which really stuck in my imagination, um, including the one about the uh, the bit of um, security wall uh, which had been used as part of the 2012 Olympic ceremony. Uh, but and then also I think at the a NATO conference in, in Cardiff and yeah, then sort of yeah, found its right, way yeah. to the to the jungle. I think. Um, yeah. 
Yes, absolutely. Quite... So the so the landscape. I mean, let's let's you know talk about the fencing. And I mean, one of the objects, you know, the object that I've loaned actually to the exhibit is a, a is a sample of the Calais fencing. Mm. Um, you know, you know the Calais landscape. The the you know the 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 creation in the Calais landscape of what we're calling a um, a form of environmental hostility mm. starts with the fencing. It's absolutely there. If you if you walk around the Calais landscape now, it's a labyrinth, increasingly more and more fences and ditches and walls. And these, in a very strange way, reenact the boundaries or the fortifications of the Atlantic Wall that was mm. built um, in the Second World War by the Germans, along this idea of a wall that would run from... Uh, the, uh, the, you know, the Portuguese to the Norwegian end uh, mm. of the coast um, to the north of the continent of you know, Europe. Um, and those remnant, you know, remnants of that, that wall building, that, mm. that, that sort of defensive moment, you know, litter the landscape or around the, uh, the Calais you know, area. And indeed, at the site of the jungle, uh, there is one of the major um, you know, buildings that sort of survived from that, a battery that was part of the Atlantic Wall. But of course, those sort of defences in the 1940s were looking north. They were against, they were defences against invasion, you know, military invasion from, from the sea. Mm. What you have now in the Calais landscape and elsewhere in the world is a moment of the building of fences and walls, which is looking in the opposite, you know, direction, mm. and is really built as a defence against a very different sort of imagined threat. Mm. These are walls and fences which are built against not, you know, soldiers, or or invading. You know, boats, but they are, uh, you know, with with you know, military sort of personnel on them. They are fences which are built against the image of, you know, the human, who who really has sort of nothing apart from a backpack and mm. and a cell phone. Um, and you know, this is a really, you know, one of the arguments we make is that this is a really unprecedented moment. Mm. of the building of walls, whether it is, you know, the Trump wall mm. between America and Mexico, whether it's the wall building building in between the Norwegian and the Russian borders, between Iraq and Turkey, you know, obviously we can think about, you know, the walls in the Palestine area, you know, the Israel, and, you know, the walls between Israel and Palestine, you know, wall building of certain kinds for, for a different sort of end. But that environmental hostility isn't only about uh, wall building it's about a set of it's about the use of it of, of impermanence as a mm. form of the governance of the border landscape as well so the regime especially since 2011 or so the yeah, the growing regime of uh, yeah, deterrence the idea mm. yeah, the policy or to attempt to deter anyone from wanting to go to Calais to attempt to make an irregular you know, crossing into the UK. You know, this is uh, this is a policy which involves 
as we learn from the really important work uh, that's being undertaken by activists and NGOs in in the area, um, this involves a whole set of continual destructions of uh, violence against objects, of continual mm. uh, you know, dispossessions, you know, violence against the person, uh, and even just you know, techniques like the taking of a single shoe from a displaced mm. person in the landscape in order to try to slow them down, mm. you know, to make their lives really horrible in order to in order to keep them mourning, yeah, to keep them moving. So, so we we see that sense that the destruction in October 2016 was not the end of the jungle landscapes. This mm. is an ongoing landscape, as, as you mentioned earlier. It's a 20-year landscape that goes back at least to the late 1990s. Um, and it's one in which the sort of yeah, performance of destruction of these large uh, uh, camps being removed, as we saw most obviously, you know, in the uh, in the media spectacle in October 2016, you know, we uh, you know we mustn't let that idea of crisis mask the fact that these aren't emergencies; these are ongoing situations. Mm. And if you like the micro jungles, which are being destroyed this month mm. in the Calais landscape, the number of uh, displaced people and unaccompanied children who will sleep rough. Mm. You know, in the Calais landscape, yeah, this evening mm. um, is ongoing. This, this you know, didn't end. We didn't end the geopolitics of this, mm. or indeed the long-term histories of this in October 2016. So, you know, one thing that we hope to do with our exhibit by the assembling of objects that aren't meant to be here, mm. in the same way as we're reassembling sort of human lives and memories that aren't meant to be here, we're interested in really trying to mirror that and to and to celebrate and to extend that sense of the jungle that was really that sense in which it it was it was built against that environmental hostility mm. it was built as a form of protest you know a form of hospitality mm. you know a form of hope against this this um this immense hostility in which the environment itself is being you know put to work in order to distinguish in between one kind of person and another yeah i, th I think something that this approach gets at really well is the sort of the and you get a sense of during the book I and mean, obviously i haven't seen the exhibition yet but is the sort of going through material culture is, is a a way into the the experience of uh trying to understand what it might be like um to be in to be in Lalonde, uh, and one of the sort of stories that keeps on getting told is about sort of baton strikes at kind of um, at pocket level to break people's mobile phones. And yeah, I mean, it's something yeah. you I saw someone tweeting the other day about uh, police in the UK sort of like breaking kids' mobile phones because yeah, because it's often be something you used to film uh, police brutality or that kind of thing. It's a very sort of uh, important and powerful object. Or another thing that um, that I. That I would like to sort of ask you about is uh, the the pro and it, it's linked to this sense of hospitality you're talking about and the sense of creating a a, a space uh, despite uh, the authorities sort of attempts to remove those uh, and is that kind of like art making there's a the story you tell about mm. um, people which I think is also sort of something which is a phenomenon which has been noticed in in Palestine as well sort of people making uh, plant pots out of uh, tear gas canisters sure. Um, could you, is that yeah? Could you is is there one is there some of that 
art making reflected in the the exhibition or there is there is absolutely yeah so so um you know a number of the people that were involved you know very much in the art interventions into the calais have been involved as co-curators and have you know loaned us you know materials um and i think that's that has been an immensely you know important element of something that we've tried to extend in the exhibit so we're trying to give those artworks which are in you know sue sue has has a shed full of you know works which were made by displaced people and unaccompanied you know, children at the jungle in 2016 we're very interested in the status of those objects mm. and in the fact that right from the start they were forms of acts of resistance let's imagine i mean one one thing that the co-creators in 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 all our early workshops and when we thought about well how can we you know repurpose the museum in order to have a conversation about about immigration about border work about identity about what happened at the Calais jungle and what continues to happen in the Calais landscape one thing that came across really importantly early on was that sense that constructions in the Calais landscape were forms of acts of you know, resistance against the border, the use of human lives, of sort of timber, of the tarpaulin, of these different materials against the steel and the concrete of the fences. And that goes into the creativity that went into the photographs that people took and mm. the documentation that, that, that people made. So when you have a form of resistance that takes the, f the th a form of resistance this you know the form of which is is about making something that leaves a trace mm. making something that endures for a while and importantly something that can be seen and therefore is able to bear witness against you know the bulldozer against mm. the you know the, the the acts of you know the continual acts of uh, you know dispossession then a potential space for a kind of archaeology of the of the near present opens up, and mm. I think that's that's what we 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 are hoping with our exhibit um, uh, that we will be able to you know, to do yeah, justice to that sense in which what happened at the Calais landscape was a making visible of an ongoing situation that continue that that still now has not you know gone away mm. so let's be absolutely clear for anyone you know listening that doesn't understand um how these things work the externalization of the border that you mentioned earlier that that yeah you know, that happened with the opening of the uh, uh the channel tunnel but then also the externalization of of the border to the port from 2003 means that anyone wishing to claim asylum in it in the uk is forced to to make an irregular passage mm. and that irregular crossing inevitably means having to take your life in your hands to, to, mm. to attempt really to to get into the back of a lorry to be trafficked to you know yeah recently we've seen examples of iranians uh you know, trying to take boats Across, you know, 200 people have you know, lost their lives in the Calais landscape mm. under these you know, conditions in the past you know, 10 years. Um, and this is this is the border regime. Mm. 
mm. and its effects um, and really to make that visible to how to continue the public conversation about it mm. and to think about you know what ongoing situations and ongoing the sheer experimental nature of this border work which really reminds us I think of you know, nothing else apart maybe from you know, Northern Ireland in the 1970s. This mm. was one of the last times at which we had such a sustained experimental engagement with how to manage borders, how to do border governance. I mean, the yeah, the troubles um, in the early 1970s involved the invention by the British of the rubber bullet. Mm. And we have almost the invention with the routine use of tear gas, with the, the constant, what they call uh, uh, the chasse de l'homme, the kind of manhunt, the constant mm. hounding of anyone walking, sleeping, the, the, yeah, the tactics of exhaustion that attempt to uh, deprive, um, yeah, displace people of sleep. Mm. These are, you know, these... These are ex these are experiments, and mm. they're dangerous experiments, and and they're being funded, yeah, by the British taxpayer. Yeah, one of the sort of interesting propositions you kind of you make, or kind of the aims you set out for the, for the work, is is um, which you were just touching on there was the idea of uh, the the border work you're talking about, the exhibition and the uh, the book being aimed at creating a counter-image, Gegenbild is the German term you use, uh, of um, of conditions there that um, possibly cuts against the representations of it we see uh, in or have seen in the press, the way that things like um, the hostile environment is reported in, in certain newspapers. And, and, and certainly it's something that um, at the moment, thinking about, you know, Theresa May sort of uh, in, a, in a current incarnation sort of like how much of this was involved with uh, her tenure as a as Home Secretary. Uh, I wonder if you could talk about that counter image idea because I think one of the other projects you mentioned is is it DUF, DUF or yeah. um, adding the site to Google Images and sort of that because that seems like a very important gesture. Yeah, so I mean our sense is that we have a moment we have the opening up at the moment of a political space around the politics of the visual, around what can what can be seen and what can't be seen. Mm. Um, uh, and so our colleague you know, Nick Mizov uh, from NYU, who who will be in Oxford as a part of the event which we're holding for the exhibition, he's he has a series of uh, talks he's giving in late May. Mm. Um, his book, The Appearance of Black Lives Matter was a great inspiration for us in the in the putting together of this project. He, in the context of you know, North America, makes the case that the Black Lives Matter movement was one that came about out of a particular sort of technological moment. Mm. The existence of you know, dashcam footage and cell phone footage was able to make... Uh, visible to to allow appearance for uh, violence against African Americans, which of course was ongoing violence, mm. and the politics that comes about then about making something visible, about saying something loud, has something in common with the descriptive, with with what we 
in in archaeology what sometimes we've thought thought about as the more you know boring or the more conservative elements of our discipline simply to describe something to put something on mm. exhibit to you know to point to something or mm. to draw it or to or to photograph it whereas we have and i think not only in the black lives matter campaign in some of the use, uses of iconography for politics, whether it's the Confederacy statues mm. and their relationship to the legacies of of the uh, Confederacy in America, or whether it's in in Oxford and and in Cape Town, the Rosemont's Fall movement, mm. which was such a crucial moment to use a statue to talk about institutional racism mm. as an ongoing after effect of empire. Mm. We're at this moment where. Images and objects being seen are able to create a space in a new way. Part of this is digital. Part of it's just the the historical moment we're in. I, I, I don't know what's causing it. Mm. But we feel there's an urgency to these ephemeral objects, these ephemeral fragments that people have kept. They're full of meaning full of human life. They're full of relationships. They're full of, of there's a, such a you know a powerful you know dimension sort of human dimension to every object and image which is in this exhibit whether it's an art photographer that has you know taken and you know series of activist images whether it's the calais cross that is this that was you know, salvaged from the orthodox church Can you say a bit um, more about that yeah, yeah. And th- i mean there were so and so people kept objects you know yeah. and and you know and so the calais cross which is on loan to us from yeah, Bangor, where the Bishop of uh, Bangor is mm. the you know is you know, looking after this thing, um, you know, you know, with the dismantling of the Orthodox Church, of course, that that was one of the most you know, visible occasions on which the icons and and other religious objects were given a you know an afterlife, mm. uh, you know, and were kept and have this very interesting status, very important status of being both objects of memory, but also objects around contemporary um, politics as well. So these are very much in the present, but they're very much about sort of remembering, you know, the near past as Mm. well. So just to kind of uh, take that cross, for example, so the the cross was, um, was, was made by, by people in the camp. Yeah. What, was, uh, what what's it what, what does it look like? What's it kind of? Well, it's a it's it's a wooden cross. It's yeah, yeah, yeah it's painted. Yeah, it's painted blue, and it's on display alongside you know other things, other fragments that survive. And it's the so so I mean with the cross, it's the stories that we can tell yeah. really that sort of that sort of come come about you know from that and and it is it's a set of stories that lead into you know the the yeah the place of uh, religion both islam and and essentially 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 yeah, christianity as well within the camp uh you know the eritrean community mm. at the jungle um were the were the were the real you know really important yeah, dimension of that orthodox yeah, tradition. Um, it's it's a reminder, though, of course, of which again is in terms of the temporal uh, uh, elements of the jungle. One of one of the important things that we learned and and which we're trying to communicate with this exhibit, which is about the post-colonial you know dimension and the particular geographies that 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 happen 
that mm. came together at the Calais Jungle. So, you know, we think about if you read the media reports of you know what what sort of Calais meant. There, there are really you know it's a bilateral conversation from the mm. right in the Daily Mail or you know which which you know. We, yeah, whichever, yeah, wherever you choose to get your 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 hate from, uh, you know, let's imagine it's the Daily Mail. Uh, you know, there's the line that that people are at Calais because of, you know, the pull factor of uh, benefits or mm. whatever else it's imagined, you know, that people want. Um, from the left, there's an argument which certainly has some uh, importance and sort of truth, you know, within it. That that there's a that you know that there is a push factor that mm. that there are wars the ongoing wars going on in Iraq and elsewhere in the Middle East and you know these these are these are asylum seekers who need to find somewhere to go, but there's also a longer term historical you know dimension that that sort of you know, bilateral argument and the rhetoric of crisis, you know really misses. And that's the fact that the people of the jungle, the, the people continuing to live in the micro jungles of sort of Calais now, the people when when the censuses were taken of the jungle in you know two thousand and sixteen, which which were activist you know, censuses, really mm. important, absolutely crucial work. We learned that uh, from those that, that that really those people at the jungle are from four countries. Mm. Uh, and so the two Sudans, yeah, South Sudan and Sudan, from Eritrea and and also Afghans as well, and so Afghanistan. Now all three of those countries, all all four of those countries really, but all the all the two Sudans, if we count them as one, come from, have a common history, in the late nineteenth century and early twentieth century of of being central locations for informal empire for Britain. Mm. So one of the arguments we make in the book and in the exhibit is that in, uh, at a time at which in this country we are absolutely having a crucial, urgent you know, national conversation ab about uh, the Windrush scandal mm. and the mistreatment and uh, the the inherent you know, racism of you know, governments of the policies around those people who fight who who are uh, are from or who whose you know, whose parents were from the uh, the commonwealth from the caribbean from the indian subcontinent from kenya and so on we're absolutely having that crucial conversation and we're missing the fact that those people from more recent sort of chunks of empire from informal empire who were told that the British colonial power stood for, for, for something that was worth standing for. Mm. Those people that find themselves in these fast-changing countries who are moderates or who are, who are you know, protesting against you know, changes in their country or who are um, you know, Christians, who are you know, Muslims, who are all sorts of different backgrounds, find, find, find that that life in those countries is is unlivable because mm. of conscription in Eritrea or because they're they're you know locked up in Iran or whatever you know whatever their individual stories are they find their way to Calais looking for asylum in a sense that there is an ongoing post-colonial you know, debt there which we mm. haven't even started to think about we mm. haven't as a country we haven't thought about our debt our debts that came about through not you know, settler colonialism or the 
slave trades, although we, you know, with all those contexts, we haven't even started with those either. Mm. We, we, there's this other, you know, dimension for extractive or for militarist colonialism as we see it in the Middle East and the Horn of Africa in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, which we're dealing with the after, after effects now. So, so, so we're very interested in the show of see, and in the book uh, of seeing the Calais landscape as a post-colonial landscape mm. as well. Uh, you're listening to Sweet 212 on Resonance 104.4 FM. Uh, I'm Tom Overton. I'm talking to Dan Hicks about uh, his book and exhibition collaboratively uh, with Sarah Mallet and Caroline Gregory and and, and many others, uh, which uh, will be at the Pit Rivers uh, in April and uh, the book will be out in May. Uh, and it's uh, just talking about there, about something that I... I I sort of tried to set out some of the context right at the, the top of the show, but um, talking about that post-colonial sort of aspect of uh, of this whole whole project, I wondered if you could, because th actually the, the the physical geography of uh, of the Pas de Calais has this much longer and sort of fascinating sort of palimpsestic history uh, and position in the British Empire, uh, because it's. Uh, and that's quite a kind of like I mean, there's a sort of almost narrative level. It's uh, it's interesting on, but like it's kind of uh, I wonder if that's something. You could, it's early modern history is also kind of you know because it's the moment at which Britain's retreat, well, England's retreat from uh, from France at that moment sort of marks the, the beginning of uh, its sort of broader imperial ambitions. I think. Yeah, that's right. So we definitely use and in the book. I know I won't go into it now, but the detail of some of the histories of, you know, the English sort of presence and then the withdrawal from Calais and its relationship really with early empire in the late 16th century. We definitely make that that point, but we do so really in order to sort of, you know, counterpose it with, you know, the temporal regimes which are going on, which again is something that the that the border and the border work shares with anthropology and the Anthropology Museum. So, um, I mean, let's make the point about impermanence really, uh, really, really clear at this point. You know, the thing that anthropology and archaeology aim to bring to this study and to this place and to our perception of what the media tell us is a crisis or an emergency, what we're able to bring is a set of these longer term, you know, persistences. Um, the the notion of uh, impermanence as a strategy of a border governance has you know, really become a, a cliche of you know the media representation of the Calais jungle. The sheer staginess of the bulldozing as a spectacle has mm. served to distract from the slow violence of the cycles of the removals as they've existed over two decades. So the displaced people at the Calais border are not only dispossessed of uh, shelter or of, you know, what they're wearing, their clothes, their shoes, their property, but also of the ability to stop or to sleep in mm. the landscape. Their, you know, their experience and their, you know, predicament is uh, represented as an emergency or a crisis when it's an ongoing situation. And, you know, the way in which time is used as a, almost a kind of weapon mm. has a parallel and a rather you know, sinister parallel, really, with the history of anthropology. Mm. So there's a long 
history and anthropology as a discipline of uh, the use of time to create alterity, otherness. Mm. The classic example was that notion of the, which starts really in, really in the 17th century, but is very visible in the 19th century. The idea that the further from the metropole you travel, the further back in time you go until mm. you get to it's you know, it's, you know, normally Tasmania or South America um, or, or Africa suddenly you're in the stone age right mm. that you can travel across space but then you end up in time mm. uh in in a sort of prehistory now what we're doing you know what this country is doing at the calais border has a similar you know temporal way of classifying people which is a technological way so at the calais you know, the effect of the border work at at calais the way in which it reduces a class of humans to abjection and to precarity has a almost temporal it's like a, it's almost like they're in a different epoch a different mm. age a sort of a mesolithic existence in that they have no modern technology no shelter no transport no lighting no heating no ability, you know, no sedentism. I mean, sedentism is what happens in the Neolithic. Yeah. They're, hun they're forced simply to hunt and gather. They might have a cell phone. They've got nothing else. In this artificial world where you travel by foot and not by train, where you're not living in the same moment as the West, this again is a, this is a, this is a technique for making otherness, mm. which is happening at the border, which has this really frightening, you know, parallel with the history of anthropology as a discipline. And we want to unearth that and expose it and, you know, think about it in these in these ways. I mean, it's something you point out in the you're just talking about news coverage and say something like the Daily Mail, that one of the sort of favoured tropes is pointing out like these people were supposedly yeah, supposedly in, in great need and, and peril, but look at them, they've got mobile phones. Like, yeah, I mean, that that old, you know, racist you know, trope is one, again, that anthropologists know yeah. from, you know, the, the, you know, the misrepresentation of indigenous people around the world. Yeah, so mm. yeah, that, that, that is absolutely what we're talking about. Uh, that, that sense that the ability to, to own a, you know, if you have a cell phone, you shouldn't be able to, you know, to claim asylum. I mean, it's mm. absolutely nonsensical. Mm. It's talking about that sort of uh, sort of trying to pick up that that strand about uh, ideas of time. Something that's quite uh, provocative and interesting that you you say, and I'm thinking about this also in relation to because recently on Sweet Two One Two we've been doing programs about landscape writing and, and fascism, and uh, and one of the the terms which often comes up, uh, especially in when that discussion sort of moves towards climate change, is the Anthropocene. Uh, and this is something that you, you take on in the book uh, and you uh, say it has a, a limited use. Uh, and I wondered if you wanted to expand upon that. Sure. OK. So, I mean, this isn't this isn't a major focus of the exhibit by any means, but it's certainly something that in the book we we explore. So the Anthropocene literature, I mean, there's there's no doubt that um, as Gassan Hajj argues in his in his fantastic book, that uh, you know, racism is is a part of 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 environmental you know disaster. Mm. That there are uh, you know that that you know, racism is really bad for the environment, right? Mm. Uh, and you see that in the ongoing experiences, the ongoing 
durations of empire, the fact that the post-colonial isn't, you know, and in the book we put the post in brackets mm. to make the point that it is an ongoing process, what Anne-Laura Stoller calls you know, ruination rather than ruins. Mm. It isn't that we've got the remains of empire in the fragments of our disciplinary thinking or our institutions like museums or our borders. These are ongoing acts of ruination against humans, but also against the you know, the countries of the global south. Mm. Um whether now is it that the Anthropocene helps us in that? Because the thing that the that the Anthropocene does is it turns environmental uh, uh, change into a into an epoch. Mm. It uses a particular form of sort of you know, you know, linear temporality, Western lin, uh, linear you know, temporality, to announce a new moment, a new phase, a new. His, historical phase mm. and and I, I i personally worry that the anthropocene literature much of the source of creative engagement with it especially really misses what environmental catastrophe really does mean for the people of the global south i mean to think more anthropologically you know, beyond you know the example of the calais jungle um eduardo viveros de castro writing in in the context of uh, of amazonian brazil mm. talks about this notion of the end of the world so mm. you know we're thinking the anthropocene literature announces the end of the world but for indigenous people, the end of the world happened in the 16th century when the conquistadors, mm. you know, turned up with 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 their dogs and their horses and their guns, and their you know syphilis and whatever else, right? So mm. so the end of the world has been. We've had 500 years. If you're an indigenous Amazonian, the the end. Of the, we're 500 years after the end of the world. Mm. And what would it mean to announce a new epoch of the end of the world now? Um, so I think these histories of, you know, I mean, we're now 35 years on from Alfred Crosby's book, Ecological Imperialism, mm. you know, and the anthropological, the Anthropocene literature somehow sometimes, you know, uh, yeah, misses those those longer term histories. But also, I guess it's anthropos. I mean, it's the word itself is halfway to anthropocentric, isn't it? Mm. I mean, and one of the things that we're very interested in with this exhibit is to show the intimate relationships in between the non-human and environmental worlds and and if you like the human worlds our hope for anthropology is that the harder you look at objects the more you foreground things and environments the reason we've called it lond is to is to capture that sense in both english and french of yeah, landscape. You know, mm. this is a landscape archaeology project. This is mm. a, a landscape history project in many ways. Uh, but that sense that actually landscape is the more you look at place and object, the more human your account of the world really, you know, becomes. More than anything, we hope, which is which again, I don't think Anthropocene, we don't need the notion of Anthropocene to do this. Mm. We want to open up a space and time for something that isn't meant to endure. Mm. And so that we can have a conversation, an open-ended conversation about, you know, that the ongoing situation at the Calais border and what that means for us in the context of, I mean, here, here we are, we're having this conversation in the middle of March 2019. Who knows what's going to happen with our, relation, our wider relationship with 
you know, Europe, but we know, what we definitely know at this point is that a particular form of imperial nostalgia mm. has really sort of got us to this a rather nasty, racist, inward-looking uh, moment mm. in our public discourse. This is not unrelated to the plate. A part of the place that this is happening is absolutely across this country in the hostile environment in Britain, but importantly at our borders as well. Mm. We're thinking a lot about the. Uh, there's endless argument about the Irish border. Hardly any conversation about the ongoing situation at the Calais border. And it's that that we're really hoping at this moment in history we can foreground. Mm. Just two sort of uh, things that that sort of put me in mind of. One is the, at one point, I think you, you sort of put up as a binary sort of like that anthropology is, is the opposite of nostalgia or kind of like it is in, con is in a sort of contradistinction to. Uh, and another is that... Um, the having just sort of uh, although I, you know I, it's not it isn't the main, a main point of the book but one of the reasons I found your use of uh, the term Anthropocene interesting is because you suggest uh, the term Necrocene in, instead which yeah. is a, a I wonder if you could explain a bit to listeners sure so I mean Achille Mbembe's work has been a really important um, influence upon us in this work so in much of the refugee studies literature uh, the you know without getting overly sort of theoretical the influence of Foucault mm. and his notion of what he called the biopolitical has been very important the politics of life so Foucault explored this in institutions like hospitals and you know, prisons the control of human life as being for him a a sort of politics and that that notion of the biopolitical in the work of um, a Agamben and a number of other theorists who are, who are who are often cited in the refugee studies literature mm. that has become really important Achille and Bembe's critique is in many ways our point of departure here so so Mbembe makes essentially a post-colonial critique of the biopolitical by introducing the image of the necropolitical so is there a sense not just that you're controlling human bodies but at borders, maybe in museums, maybe in other forms of well, yeah. Let's just be honest. These are these are institutions of you know these these are you know this is white infrastructure that mm. we're talking about. This is technologies of a particular notion of the nation state, mm. a particular notion of you know a kind of hangover of ideologies of race from from the late nineteenth century. There are technologies of who lives and who dies. That's mm. what the necropolitical is for 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 Mbembe. Um, the idea that and the the you know the forced displacement of people is one of the techniques or the outcomes of a wider global reg you know, regime of the necropolitical in Achille and Bembe's you know vision. Mm. So so for us absolutely that 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 sense that maybe these these are times of when you know the enormously important work which is called you know the list has named and highlighted the more than 36,000 36, you know people who have lost their lives trying to enter fortress europe mm. in the past 10 years mm. you know the sheer scale of the loss of life in the mediterranean in attempting to make other border crossings long before schengen long before you get to calais mm. um 
these are these are crucial parts of the world that we're living in now so that yeah that notion of the necrocene i think we offer it i forget quite what we say i think we offer it as a as a word and then and then say we probably won't use it but but yeah there's something we certainly need to do better than the anthropocene let's put it like that yeah well it's it's a it's a, it's a very sort of suggestive and interesting um idea and, and certainly that those are the the conditions that prevail in that sort of space and that they define them i mean as usual we, we will uh post links to a lot of the sort of related reading and you sent me an interesting uh piece on drawing on that um one of the things that we haven't uh haven't really sort of uh had time to discuss yet is the relationship of uh the ph photographs by Car caroline gregory to the, the, the text uh and could you say a bit about where how the photographs were taken and sort of uh the, yeah, the context in which they were made and how they relate to the book really sure absolutely so i should mention you know and so the you know the co-curators are uh majid adin Ch uh Ch aziz uh caroline who you just mentioned caroline uh, gregory noah Munawa, noah salibo and also Rashir wali alongside the arts activist sue partridge uh myself and sarah um, so Caroline's work photographically and also Majid's artwork and the illustration that we've, we've, we've commissioned for the exhibit are tremendously important in terms of what we're calling, uh, using the terminology from Hannah Arendt, what we're, t we're calling the space of appearance. So they, whether it's in her everyday recording of the images of the camp, everyday everyday life in in the camp on her iphone or whether it is the you know, majid's illustrations of the his experiences of you know living at the jungle these are these are really you know crucial elements of the sort of visual politics mm. of this exhibit and thanks very much i suppose another thing to to quickly just as we wrap up finally and um, say is about the uh the charity to whom the proceeds uh from the book and uh hopefully donations at the exhibition are going to absolutely so, so and so entry to the exhibition is uh, there is no cost but we have um, encouraged uh, donations to at the exhibit help refugees the all the royalties from the book which has the same title as the exhibit Land, the calais jungle and beyond all royalties go to l'auberge des migrants who are the crucial calais based um, NGO who have been working really hard for almost 10 years now to support refugees in the Calais landscape and if you don't know you know, Le des de Migrants you know, Google them look them up on social media uh, and uh, really absolutely be a wonderful bunch of people fantastic thanks dan we'll, we'll, we'll post links to all of that at the end of the, at the on on the twitter at sweet underscore two on two i'm tom overton i've been joined by dan hicks uh and next week uh juliet is uh has a, a very exciting show i can't t quite tell you about yet but um you'll find out in due, due course thanks very much okay thank you yeah <laughs> this program has been brought to you by resonance 104.4 fm if you liked what you heard and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm.